This is Conspiranormal. Welcome to Conspiranormal, everybody. Serfiel and I are wearing our um, pins for our Patreon episodes. Our Patreons, rather. You've got the International Association of Conspiranormalists on, and yes, I've yes. got the myst- Mystic Crew of Conspiranormal. And we have with us, um, I think, someone that really needs no introduction. I think I've been saying that a lot lately. But uh, Richard Spitz is back with us. Uh, we had a really good time with him back in November, and uh, we invited him back on. Richard, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 good to have you. Um, I really enjoy talking to you because I mean you're you're a history professor, and I enjoy talking history, and I especially enjoy we both do talking the history of about about weird stuff. But uh, <laughs> we're gonna kind of get a little serious tonight because uh, we're gonna talk about um, anti-Semitism, and we kind of wanted to get into some of how there's a lot of anti old, old anti-Semitic tropes and memes in kind of like the conspiracy, um, field today, especially I think with like QAnon, it's kind of all over the place, Yeah, but we're going to talk about kind of like the history of it. And the reason that decided to get you on to talk about this is because you, you have the great courses, which is um, excellent. I've I've got it through like Amazon Prime, and like it's really just like an invaluable resource resource because it's not just your excellent twenty four out twenty four part series, but there's there's so much on there. I could never watch all of it. <laughs> so, uh, but you did an episode about the protocols of the elders of Zion, are sometimes referred to as the learned elders of Zion, and. I don't, this is something that we haven't, I don't think really touched on the show, even though Serfiel and I know, we know some things about it, but, uh, I was telling you before in the, like our, before we started talking that you, the audience cannot see this, but we actually do have copies of it because William Cooper printed it in the very classic book, conspiracy book called Behold a Pale Horse which I think he actually got some, uh, some flack for doing that, but, uh, I've never actually sat down and read it myself, but I think he, he either said in the introduction to it or actually changed the text. He said, just substitute the Illuminati for, he's like, it's, it's not anti-Semitic. It's just about the Illuminati actually. Yeah, he says the author's note, this is an exact reprint of the original text. This has been written intentionally to deceive people. For clear understanding, the word Zion with a Z should be Sion. Right. Any reference to Jews, I guess he's he's referring to the Priory of Sion. Yeah, probably. Any reference to Jews should be replaced with the word Illuminati, and the word Goyim (laughs) should be replaced with the word cattle. So when you read it that way, it's okay. If it's a Masonic conspiracy. Well, it's... you can put anybody into it you want to. Right. You, you've got a you got a pretty good template. One of the th- reasons why this the the protocols let's call them for short has the historical legs that it does is that it lays out a plan for world domination or general societal control that 
on the surface, at least if you read it, makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, whatever else you may think, if you're reading through that, well, you know, if, if you were going to control society, how would you do that? Well, you'd certainly want to control money. You'd want to control the economy, uh, control money, and you control the economy. And you would also control the media, education, all of these things. It's, it's not a bad plan. And this is why you can have a lot of people who would look at this and argue is that, well, you know, it makes sense. You know, if you're going to do it, this would be the way to do it. And therefore, it must have been done. But to give you an example as to how you can, you could, you know, you can take out Jews and you can add Illuminati. I don't know. You could put Scots, Chileans, whatever you want in it. But, but an example of where this was actually done early on was in 1919, Carl Ackerman was a journalist for the Philadelphia Public Ledger. He was an American newspaper man. In 1919 is right after the end of the First World War. It's right after the, the, the Russian Revolution, and Russia's going to figure prominently in this. But one of the things that had happened in Russia is that uh, the Reds, the Bolsheviks, had taken over. And this caused great consternation in many circles. And therefore, what Ackerman did is that somewhere he'd gotten a copy of the protocols. He had to have had one. But he then serialized in the public ledger a thing that he called the Red Bible. And he uh -huh. claimed that this was a document that laid out the plan for the Bolsheviks' nefarious plans for world domination. So that's exactly what he did. He just took it and he took the protocols, he gave it a different name, and he substituted Bolsheviks for Jews, Bolshevism for this plot, and it worked just as well. It's it's infinitely adaptable, but that that's one of the things I, I think you have to keep in mind that that gives it the power that it's had is that it describes a conspiracy which, at least on the surface, appears to be plausible. Right. So it gives it like it it gives us kind of like its own air of credibility. Well, it goes back to one of these things. One of, one of my, my views of history, this is going to sound kind of strange coming from an historian, but I probably said this the last time I was on the show, and if I didn't, I should have, so I'll say it again. What we generally think of as history, this, this pageant, this whole series of, of stories, which is based, that's what history consists of. It consists of stories. It's a narrative. And what that narrative in almost every case is composed of are a smattering of facts. You know, everybody thinks that history is all about the facts, but the facts are, are hard to obtain because facts have to be something that you're absolutely sure of. You know, facts can't be approximate. Facts aren't guesswork. Above all, facts aren't opinion. Opinion can be based on facts. Well, it's supposed to be. But, but what you have in the general sort of historical narrative, the story of the human race that we think that we know, you've got a very small percentage of facts, things that you are absolutely certain of, things that are provable beyond any kind of reasonable doubt, things that you know as opposed to what you believe. The rest is opinion about what those facts mean. So... What it is, is that history, again, is a series of stories or narratives. So 
there's a narrative about the Russian Revolution. There's a narrative about the American Revolution. There's a whole, there's a narrative about every national history. There's a narrative about the history of the Roman Catholic Church. There's a narrative of the history of Jews told by Jews and told by others. Everybody has this kind of narrative. Now, the thing about a narrative is that, again, it's a story. It's a kind of plot. And for a narrative to be effective, it has to be a good story. That's all that it really requires. You know, it, it, it doesn't have to be real, but it needs to sound plausible. Right. Because if something just seems to be completely irrational, you know, if, if the story doesn't work, then we'll laugh at it. Uh, we can, you know, we're all film critics. Okay. We can figure out <laughs> movies are bad, but usually because the story's bad. It doesn't make, how many times have you done this? You've watched a movie. I don't know. I don't want to pick on sci-fi movies, but they're often big offenders in this. And then later on, you're sitting there and you pick it apart of all the holes in the plot. Because we expect the story to hang together. Well, history is just the same thing. It's a series of plots that have been put together, some with more facts than others. But the reason why they tend to hang together, the reason that, the, that a narrative will endure, is because it seems to make sense. It's a good story, and it's usually the one that people want to believe. Right. It's plausible. It's plausible. But very often, if you take things back to – this is the problem. If you deconstruct history – often back to what you really know, back to those little elusive facts, then things get pretty vague. And the other thing you find is that you can, around the facts, you can build other narratives. That is, you can construct a story that may be the exact opposite of the other one, but they all use the same facts in, in different ways. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's up to the historian to kind of dig through all that. And there's also revisionist history, too, of just trying to look at things a different way than what yeah. is. You what just is come normal. up. See, yeah. you turned around and you said, that makes perfect sense. I told you a story. <laughs> it made perfect sense. Now, it's a, I'd say it's the right one, but that, that's how this happened. We, we all say, yeah. think that they make. Uh, make perfect sense. And that's all you have to do in order to convince uh, a fairly large number of people, give them a good plot that they can believe in. And that's what the protocols of the elders of Zion did. It came up with a story, a kind of a provocative, scary story. And it selected as the primary villains in that story, Jews, people who many were already inclined to be suspicious of to begin with. So got to pick a hero you can believe in. Got to pick villains you can believe in. And that's that's another one of the things that uh, that makes it work. So no, the, the protocols did not by any means invent anti-Semitism, but it right. certainly capitalized on it. Right. I want to start with kind of like the roots of anti-Semitism and to really talk about the distinction between you have religious anti-Semitism and you have a racial anti-Semitism and kind of like the difference between the two and like what, when, when the racial anti-Semitism kind of replaces the religious anti-Semitism, we need to kind of flesh this out because a lot of people don't kind of understand this part. Well, uh, the roots of, I can say anti-Semitism, a, a particular, a, a widespread, let's say suspicion or hostility towards Jews 
usually is assumed to come along with the advent of Christianity. Actually, it goes back further than that. It goes back to the Greco-Roman period. And one of the first places you can find this with a Greco-Egyptian historian called Manetho, who lived around, uh, I'll say around 300 B.C. So this is, you know, back in even the pre-Roman Empire. And Manetho, even though he wasn't really an Egyptian, was writing a history. One of the things he did contribute is he wrote a, a history of Egypt. So a lot early on, our whole idea about Egyptian dynasties and how they worked or how they didn't work was all based upon this one guy mm-hmm. who, by the way, has subsequently been figured out to be, mm, you know, much of what he said was BS. <laughs> that is, he was <laughs> Roy. When you actually began to compare things to what Manetho said, because he was talking about things that had supposedly happened 4,000 years before he was born, he didn't apparently get everything right. <laughs> Manetho story, uh, in, in some ways it was connected to, no, here's where you get different narratives. The Exodus. Everybody's seen Charlton Heston in the movie, right? Oh, yeah. So Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And we know how the story goes. The Egyptians enslaved the Hebrews. They were mean to them. Moses led uh, the Hebrews and and a vast exodus out of the country. And there was, you know, the the parting of the Red Sea, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now, Manetho relates basically the same story, but he casts it in a different narrative. Uh, in this, in his version of the story, the Hebrews were essentially a bunch of marauding nomads who had come into Egypt like a plague of locusts. They had been barely tolerated by the Egyptians. Um, in his view, you know, they were apparently too dumb or lazy to do any useful work, and therefore the Egyptians employed them as menial labor and servants. Uh, and then one day, basically, they stole the silver and ran off into the desert. And, and the Egyptians were glad to get rid of them because apparently they were just bad people and they carried venereal disease. They brought all kinds of things with them into Egypt and, and they were glad to see them go. And, and furthermore, one of the things you would argue, this, this just showed that they were, they were sort of a bad people generally. But then he also, and, and they still, he goes, argue they, they became a people who, because of their peculiar monotheistic belief, which was kind of weird for the ancient world, they were essentially unfriendly to all other peoples around them. They were, it was one of these differences between the ancient or not so ancient Greeks and the Hebrews or what remained of them, the, the Jews. One of the things about the Greeks is that they, you know, if the Greeks ran into other people who had gods, they just assumed that they were their gods that these people were calling by different names. The Greeks were very, well, Hellenistic in their approach. They, th- they thought of themselves, first they thought they invented everything. Uh, they didn't invent a lot, but they were, they were extremely cosmopolitan. On the other hand, the Jews, the remaining Hebrews, were, were not. Uh, they, they very much were, were a people apart. Uh, they tended to have uh, religious practices and, and that set themselves apart. And so the, the Greeks, or people influenced by the Greeks, considered to be these Judeans as simply being kind of unfriendly, hostile people. And as an example, as I said, they, they hate everybody else, and they will capture Greeks 
They will capture non-Jews and they will fatten them up as sacrifices for Passover. Oh, so it goes way back even then. Wow. The stuff that would become blood libel and everything else. Millennia later, in you're right, and you can see Manitho, and he has to have gotten that story. I don't think Manitho sat in his room one day and just thought this up. He'd heard, he was recounting something he had heard. So the idea of Jews being a kind of people apart, often hostily engaged or negatively viewed by other peoples around them goes at least as far back as Manitho, and it probably goes back there. That reputation for a kind of orneriness was then increased during the period of the Roman Empire, first, particularly in the first and second centuries, by not one, not two, but by three Jewish rebellions. The one you usually hear about is the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, but that wasn't the end of it. Now, there was another one, and then the final one, I think, was around 135, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And these were extremely, these weren't minor uprisings. Hundreds of thousands of people, Jews and non-Jews, died in, in the wars that were set off by it. So what had happened is that by the time you come along by about the second century AD, you know, the height of the Roman Empire, Judeans within the empire had been basically seen as bad imperial citizens. They didn't go along with the Roman program. Uh, they engaged in costly, bloody, feudal, re feudal rebellions. And this was an idea that Romans generally and others within the empire viewed them as, as, a, as, as problematic. It also probably has something to do as to why Christianity, which remember all began with a bunch of Jews, right? Right. Jesus, his apostles, it was... Now, some people aren't going to like this, but this is, this, is a, this is a narrative or a way of looking at it. Christianity has its roots in a Jewish heresy or yeah. in a Jewish schism. We're not really sure what, but it certainly is rooted in Judaism. But it eventually becomes something very different. And one of the things that happens over this period of around, you know, from... You know, the, the beginnings, you know, basically from the Last Supper up until the establishment of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, you have this whole early development of Christianity, which is something I don't think we understand at all. Because how you get from point A to point B is uh, in many ways a, a kind of mystery, again, about which there are relatively few facts and there's a lot of opinions. But one of the things that was apparent in this period is that the Jewish uprisings, the, the generally bad reputation which Jews gained within the empire. Well, another group of people who had a bad reputation early on, remember, were Christians. Now, see, it's not really true that Christians were, were constantly persecuted. They were persecuted on and off in the Roman Empire. But one of the things that didn't help one of the things that contributed to that was that, well, uh, it, it was a religious movement founded by who? Well, apparently by people from Judea. Right. And, and therefore, if Jews got a bad reputation and Christians were trying in some ways to shake off a bad reputation, 
then one of the things that inevitably you needed to do was to differentiate yourself right. where you came. It's like disavowing your family to a certain degree. But I think that's one of the, that, that Christians eventually, essentially as fewer and fewer of them were Jews. That's the other thing. Yes, it became yeah. a kind of generalized religion in which Jews were no longer the predominant element. Well, you don't have that kind of loyalty. And also, it's it's politically expedient. It's simply practical to differentiate yourself as much as possible. So, by the time you get, you know, I think, you know, into the into the third century, you've got Tertullian and other early Jew, Christian writers uh, who are saying very bad things about Jews. Uh, and the main bad thing they're saying about them is that, well, these people repudiated Christ's message, and therefore, obviously, they're just wrongheaded. But if you, if you tend to put that into the bigger context of the time, you could see how that fit into the whole that Jews are politically bad people, and then from a Christian standpoint, they're just wrongheaded because they, they rejected the message of their, of their king and leader. And see, that's why God's dispensation now goes over to us, and now he doesn't like Jews anymore. Right, right, right. Um, and then with the, with the loss of a homeland, then the diaspora are always kind of – you know, forced to be the the other within Western civilization. Well, the Roman Empire had lots of others. Remember, it's, it's a very you know the Romans themselves are the, Roman. Eventually, becomes a kind of political identity and not an ethnic identity. Right. So, I mean, uh, not to go too far off on a tangent, but you know, initially Roman meant somebody who lived within a particular town. Then it meant someone who lived in a particular area of central Italy. Then eventually it would come to mean any Italian. Then, I think around 212, when Roman citizenship was extended to all free male citizens of the empire. Well, so the other becomes something different. Then it's like becoming an American. Mm -hmm. Okay? I mean, because really, what's being an American? Uh, well, it's you pay taxes to Uncle Sam. That's it, isn't it? Right? It's it's not ethnic. You don't even have to live here to pay taxes to Uncle <laughs> Sam. But you're you're all political subjects of the empire, and right. and that's what it became. So, what what Jews? What the, the the bad rap that many not all Jews got, but that that became attached to them. You see, they weren't good citizens by wanting to remain. Jews, by wanting to remain apart in some way, not getting in with the Roman program, not by let's all be Romans, then they are bad citizens. And then by not accepting Jesus's message, by not like as this particular sect did, was to accept him as their leader, well, then they're, they're bad religiously as well. See, any way you look at it, bad, bad, bad. So that idea was established now, the curious thing is this. When the Christian church and the Roman Empire became triumphant, well, why didn't they just forcibly convert Jews? Because you could do that. Why didn't they just command that you must, you must, you know, convert or die? Pretty simple proposition. And there was, there was debate about that. But the interesting argument, basically, that was used is that, well, yes, Jews who remain as a people apart, who have refused to accept the new order of things, who have refused to give up the old ways and embrace the new ways, 
they should be kept around in some ways as an example. And they should be allowed to live. They should be allowed to exist. They should be allowed to practice their religion, but in a state of perpetual punishment in a way. That is, they, they shouldn't be treated as equals. Wasn't that Augustine? Yeah, they, they, should, be, they should be tolerated, but no. See, this is another one of these things that I think people often misunderstand about the term toleration. Which is often today interpreted to mean is that well you you like them you have some now tolerance as was once pointed out to me is what you afford a screaming baby on an airplane that's it I mean you might you don't want that baby to be there you may curse the parents who brought that baby into the world you might even entertain violent fantasies of throwing the baby out of the airplane but you can't do that because that's illegal and uncivilized so <laughs> right you just tolerate it yeah that's 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 a good analogy on how it actually was tolerate yeah. screaming but you tolerate your in-laws yeah. therefore right. you tolerate we tolerate many things so Jews were to be so if you ever think that you know that toleration is this is this harmonious state to be desired it generally isn't now when you tolerate someone you just put up with them that's all that you're doing so we're going to put up with them because they're not really any threat there aren't enough of them but also because they'll be a kind of uh they also assumed this kind of canary in a coal mine type of thing because at the end of time you know which apparently we're all waiting for because then things will be great at the end of time the jews will convert See, they'll, they'll eventually get their act together. They'll come to their senses. And how will we, and this will be a sign that Jesus is returning. So one of the reasons we need to keep them around and, you know, essentially hold them in a lowly state and, you know, figuratively or literally flog them for their wrongheadedness is because they will, at the end times, signal the second coming in their mass conversion. That's, that's why we shouldn't kill them all. We need them for that reason. And Dr. Spence, was that Augustine that came up with that? I think, but I couldn't swear to it. I, th I think Martin Luther also said that too. Oh, well, Martin Luther, um, not to be confused with Martin Luther King, the, you know, the German uh, 16th century Martin Luther had, uh, had very nasty things to say about Jews. And the reason for that is that they didn't become Protestants. Yeah, right now. Because this is the, you know, Luther had, of course, come to the realization as a Catholic clergyman that the church was all wrong, um, that it was had been misleading people for centuries, and its its doctrines were a, a complete travesty of Christianity, and that he formed Lutheranism, one of the of the Protestant movements. And his assumption was that, well, you know. Those Jews were right never to become Catholics. They could see there was something wrong with this. But now that I've cleared up all these mistakes, now that we've got the 95 theses, then immediately all the Jews will become Lutherans. When they didn't, well, that's just because they're all awful, terrible, stubborn people. Right. Yeah. And he just – and you can find uh, Luther's – you can go online and um, uh, find Luther's – statement about Jews and he thinks you should basically burn their houses and drive them out of town. They are, they are terrible people because 
they were right never to become Catholics because that was wrong, but then now that the true thing has been shown to them, we just simply can't put up with this. So you see the same thing sort of coming up again and again. I mean, the actual relationship historically between the Roman Catholic Church and Jews under its authority is fairly complicated, and it's not as hostile as you might think it would be. The church, again, tolerated them. It also protected them. So one of the things that you never find, at least that I'm aware of, that anyone in the Vatican ever signing off on are the blood libel charges. Again, this, by, by the Middle Ages, you get these – what Manitho had talked about earlier. Well, by the Middle Ages, it's now turned into Jews kidnapping Christian children around Passover, poking lots of holes in them, draining their blood out, mixing it, and making bloody matzo balls. And and by the way, if you think that's something from the Middle Ages, those accusations go all the way up until 1913. Actually, they go up to the 1940s in Syria. But there you go. <laughs> They're happening now, just with a different set of characters. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere, somewhere, it wouldn't be happening. But it, it easily could. There's nothing that would uh, that would change that. So it's it's a long, in a lot of ways, a, a violent and kind of ugly history, uh, and yet. The, the church would, I think often when, you know, when the, the situation was, was Jews were threatened with extermination or mass violence, the church would usually intervene to protect them, not again because it loved them, but because, but see, there was, this goes back to this question of about the roots of religious anti-Semitism. In the view of Martin Luther or in the view of the Roman Catholic Church, the problem with Jews is that they wouldn't kiss the cross. They would not embrace the Christian faith in whatever form you thought was the acceptable one. That was their problem. That was it. It was a matter of attitude. It was a matter of stubbornness, a matter of pride. Therefore, if a Jew converted and did so sincerely, no more problem. Remember, one of the things is that the church accepted everybody. They they wanted everybody in the, it was like the first communism, right? Everybody in the world was eventually going to be brought into the church. And and they would accept anyone who was, who was uh, sincere about doing so. And so a Jew who converted ceased to be a Jew because in the eyes of the church, they were simply the member of an errant religion, there was nothing wrong with them other than that. Now, segue up to the 19th century, you know, past the 18th century, past the age of reason. Well, that, that's where I think all the trouble starts, by the way. This is where the age of reason is and, and the enlightenment. Because this is where people began to think that all problems can be subjected to a kind of rational analysis and that we can solve them. You know, there's a right way of doing things, there's a wrong way of doing things, lots of wrong ways of doing things, one right way to do it, and through study and through experimentation, we can find the right way to do it. And once you've done that, of course, that's the right way, all the other other ways are wrong. So, in the 19th century, the advent of science, one of the things you were beginning to figure out, well, you know, you had um, Gregor Mendel who did his experiments with heredity and began to find out that 
You know, there, there are inherited biological traits. This explains why you look like your dad or why you don't and look like the milkman. Whichever one it is, you look like somebody because you inherited their biological, their biological trait. It's it's the uh, you know it's genetics, and genetics is rigid and inflexible. But it means that you these things are in there are characteristics that are inherited, and then you can imagine the idea that if you can inherit physical characteristics, do you inherit mental characteristics do you inherit elements of you know i think it's pretty observable that you know you not only very often end up looking like your dad or your mom as you get older you begin increasingly realize that you act like them too <laughs> that is that that you this is much easier to see in other people than it is in ourselves but you can tell when someone takes after that particular parent or that particular relative. Um, I don't know. Somebody once put it to me, uh, you come to the kind of scary realization that you're just all recycled parts of dead people. <laughs> just sort of combined in different ways. But somebody did that. Somebody else had that nose at some other point in time. And someone else in the past had the same sort of bad attitude that you now have as well. So that's a, you know, that's a concept in the old days didn't, really exhibit now there was this sort of science see it's science and science explains that there are inheritable characteristics and this is where you really this is where you really get into sort of categorizing people into races this is this whole taxonomy okay we we classify animals and we organize them into schools and then we began to do the same thing with people and people are races because they have certain inherited fixed biological traits and so what that did is that it began to turn peoples into biological communities as opposed to just sort of cultural communities. And that then, if you applied it to Jews, meant that beyond simply being adherence to a minority religion, a religion that might be you might be indifferent to, or you might despise, whatever it was. That's that's what it, they were simply. It was a, it was a matter of cultural choice in a way. Instead, they became a biological entity, and that's the idea that Jewish characteristics were in some way biologically set. I mean, you can find this in. Uh, go back and look at Karl Marx. There we go. Daddy of of you know communism, socialism. Marx, who also was Jewish, uh, in a family which had converted to thing I always love about Karl Marx's family is that they became the only they went from being one of the few Jewish families in a Catholic town to becoming about the only Lutheran family in a Catholic town. Hmm. So and apparently were more disliked for being Protestants than they had been being Jews before. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that Karl Marx had a complicated relationship uh, with his Jewish antecedents. But if you look at Marx closely, uh, particularly, I think he wrote a thing called History, uh, World Without Jews, is that uh, he also has no particularly positive things to say about them. Uh, he thinks that, you know, 19th century in in his Germany in the 19th century, to him, Jews were generally identified with sort of what he calls hucksterism. 
Boyajian means this kind of petty, money-grubbing capitalism. And his idea that in the future, one of the things that he envisioned that a future socialist world order would do was that it would destroy the very basis of that and thus wipe out Jews as a distinguished as it as a community. Because his view is that they weren't so much a race, they were a kind of parasitic social class. Hmm, that sounds kind of vaguely familiar, right? Because mm-hmm. remember, the national socialists are gonna parrot the same thing. Jews as parasites. Well, um, Marx, a kind of apostate Jew in his own way, in the early 19th century, said much the same thing and looked forward to a future in which Jews would not exist because the economic and social conditions that created them would cease to exist. So, you know, it, it's kind of hard to look around outside of Jews themselves for anybody who had much good to say about this. So this is something that goes back. There was this there was this climate going back centuries of suspicion, hostility, tolerance. It was and and on the other side it created I think among many Jews themselves a a kind of siege mentality. Mm-hmm. Or a well I, I think it's probably best expressed in the phrase Never trust the Goyim. Okay, who are the Goyim? Well, the Goyim are all the people in the world who are not Jews. The others. You know, I mean, usually that gets translated into Gentile, right? And is is often considered to be a neutral term. This is one of the things I've heard. Well, you know, Goy or Goyim is is a you know is a pretty neutral term. It's it just means nations. It doesn't have any kind of bad comment connotation, which really for anybody who knows, is not true. And here's the question, or the challenge to anyone, use goyim in a sentence where it has a positive meaning. All right? Because the Yiddish term goyashakoft, goyhead, all right? If you accuse someone of having a goyhead, you are not accusing them of being smart. Because some, you know, goys were generally maybe dumb, misguided, uh, but it comes back to this idea is that there was there was a world. I mean, you have to imagine a world where there's us, and then there are just all these nations of barbarians, which is really what Goyim would come down to. The barbarians, savages, people who didn't who God had not made a covenant with. Why? I guess because he didn't like them very much. And or at least not as much as us, even though he has a weird way of showing it. That's kind of Judaism in a nutshell, right there. You know, he, he chose us, but he does lots of bad things to us. But I don't know; it's just kind of a misguided affection. But you're surrounded. You know, you're this relatively small group of people. There's never been a lot of you, and there often seems to be fewer of you all the time. And you're surrounded in this world of barbarians who are essentially ignorant, savage people who don't have the grace of God and who hate you. And why do they hate you? They hate you because you're special. So you have to live with these people. Remember, it's the issue of tolerance. They're just, you can't ignore the goyim. They're everywhere. And usually they're ruling you. Or they're, they, they have some kind of control over you. So it's one of the sort of features, if you look at late medieval and sort of really, if you look in the sort of Renaissance and Reformation period, in much of Western Europe, Jews were often compelled by law to live within 
ghettos, which is where we get this term. And, and a ghetto right. means a little town. It was generally a, a walled area of a town where Jews, by law, had to live. But there was a rabbi of Venice, uh, and the Venice ghetto was one of the more important. It's not, not created until around, you know, until the 1500s, by the way. So those those came in somewhat later. But um, but there was some issue in in the community about, well, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, why are we? Why do we always have to be within the ghetto walls by sundown? And he goes, well, it's, the ghetto walls aren't there to protect the goyim from you. They're there to protect us from them. Hmm. Right. This and, and, and his view is that this, you know, it's a kind of prison, but it's also a sanctuary. And and we should really sort of be glad that we have the ghetto because it gives us a space where we can be ourselves. Because inside these walls, we can be Jews without qualification or apology. Outside the walls, we can't but we can't be. And really, if you want to live in the world outside the walls, then you have to stop being a Jew, which lots of Jews did. There was always this exodus of people who would just, you know, I'm going to make life easier. I'm going to convert. All right. So where do I sign up? Uh, and that will be it. So there's this, uh, you know, you, you've got a population which is under all of these kind of, which there's this constant pressure for people to leave. And it, um, and therefore, I think one of these things that became in Kolk, I mean, again, this goes back to what did you learn in Roman times? Never trust the goyim. And and it comes down to yet, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's getting along. Everything will be fine. All of your Christian neighbors are friendly and polite until they're not. Until they turn on you. And this was one of the things I could give you an historical example of that would be uh, there were widespread persecutions of Jews in Germany and the Rhineland in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, people were being, you know, houses were being burned, people were being slaughtered. But the king of Poland, the Catholic Christian king of Poland, said, Hey, these people have lots of skills. Jews, Come to Poland. You're all welcome here, and you will be free to worship your religion and live in towns, and everything is okay. And and they did. And it was it was a, an economic choice. He wasn't just being nice. He would realize that Jews often had like uh, they knew a good deal about uh, minting coins, and therefore one of the things that the Polish kings did early on was to put their entire mint under the control of Jewish metallurgists. Uh, which is why you find early Polish coins with Hebrew characters on them, because they're the only ones that they knew. So everything was great. Poland became a saint. That's why Jews flocked to Poland, because they were you know, it was unfriendly elsewhere. Well, that lasted for a while. It lasted for a hundred years and two hundred years. But then, uh, by the time you're going to get to the 15th, 16th century, the welcome has soured. Um, the hostility of the local, the kings have in many ways withdrawn their support. Uh, local landowners and uh, Catholic clergy and others begin to find more and other problems are blamed on the Jews. Uh, and then that will turn into uh, a, a bad situation there. And in what, in, in historical terms, what could you argue we've learned from this? Well, everything was fine in Poland until they turned on us. Okay. When we were useful to them, it was okay. The minute that we seemed to become a problem, you can't be trusted. 
So there is a there is in this way a, historically there's a, a deep gulf of suspicion and hostility on both sides. It's an unbalanced playing field. The Jews are generally at the lower end of it, but it's uh, it doesn't engender a good deal of trust. So you get to the 19th century, and you've got all of the science which is emerging, which is now all categorizing and people into races and sub-races, etc. And you know everything is right. The Irish suddenly are a race. Jews, therefore, are a race. You know, nobody's too careful what they mean by that term, but it's it's a it's a biological term. So when you belong to a race, it's not like belonging to a religion because you can change your religion. You can't change your race. You can't change your chromosomes. So if the intrinsic quality of Jewishness is transferred from being part of a religious or cultural group to being part of a biological community, then it's nothing that someone can be converted away from. So in this sense, a Jew that kisses the cross that tries to mainstream himself as a Christian, from a biological standpoint, has ceased to be a Jew. In fact, if you think there's something bad about that, you could argue that he's in fact become an even more insidious and destructive form of Jew because now he's hiding more among us. Therefore, he's in some way trying to, you know, rather than staying behind the ghetto walls and, you know, wearing the caftan and remaining obviously Jewish, now he's simply trying to infiltrate the society around him. So this is why around the 1870s, there was a German writer and publicist, newspaper man, basically, by the name of Wilhelm Marr, M-A-R-R. And Wilhelm Marr had decided to interest himself into what was now called the Jewish question. And here was the reality in the ground in sort of 1870s Germany, which had just become Germany. The little states had now become the German Empire. And one of the things that had happened in the 19th century is that Jews throughout Europe, certainly in Germany, had become emancipated. Now, what that meant is that previously, through the influence, remember, you know, the church had argued that Jews can exist among us, but they must be held in a certain lowly state in some way. They can never forget the fact that they're Jews. They have to be reminded of that and what that means, so long as they, unless they convert, and then they're not a Jew anymore. So what had happened in the 19th century is that German states and the German Empire had turned Jews into citizens. They turned them into political citizens, and they had said that, well, all citizens will have the same rights and obligations. Therefore, in the view of the laws of the German Empire, Jews are simply a religious community. In other words, they are not, they are Jewish Germans. That's all there is to it. And other than that, their rights and responsibilities are exactly the same. And it has to be noted that German states like Prussia were actually kind of ahead of the game in this emancipation. In fact, they were faster at it than England was. But what you find throughout, with, with some exceptions, Russia, Romania, mostly in Eastern Europe, where restrictions on Jews remained, is that by the 1870s, 
anti-Jewish laws or restrictions had everywhere diminished. So Jews, a Jew could go to any university, they could go into any profession, they could own land, they could do all sorts of things that Jews previously had been restricted from doing. So you, you had become Frenchmen, you had become Englishmen, Germans, whatever it might be. And that was, that was fairly broadly accepted, but it began to create the, the other thing that you're trying to define in this period is that you're creating this thing called Germany out of, you know, 30 odd states. And then that means you have to figure out what a German is. And that's, that's one of those questions you sort of take for granted. But I mean, what is that exactly? You know, it's like, what, what exactly is a Frenchman? Well, you've got, you got a Parisian. You've got some Breton-speaking peasant out in the, towards the Atlantic coast. You've got Catalan speakers down here. You know, people in the south speak French, you know, weirdly as they do in Paris. So they're all French in a, in a political sense. But in fact, there, there are a wide number of variations. But we have to decide what being a Frenchman actually means, what being a German means. And if we've now argued that being part of this or that people means you have a common biology, you know, if we define Germanness, Irishness, Jewishness biologically, then the question comes up can Jews actually be Germans biologically? I mean, they can be it politically. But are they really Germans? Now, you see, that's a debate that a century before wouldn't even existed because those right, concepts right. didn't exist. And it's a, um, you know, it goes back to the, the older period. Everybody was a subject of the king. Right. You have nations underneath empires. Right. It's just, you know, you, you are a subject of the king and therefore you're all equal in your subjectitude. You're, you're not citizens in some sense. So a Jew could be equally a subject of the king of Prussia as a Lutheran minister, a Catholic peasant, whatever it might be. But you got these scientific ideas now about heredity and about race, uh, about you know biological imperatives. So Marr didn't believe that Jews could authentically be Germans. Now, again, this is a little weird because his father was a Jew. So, also, of the four women he married, three were Jewish. So, all I can say is go figure. <laughs> Did he, there's, there's some sort of, again, like Marx, there, there's sort of personal psychological things tied up in this. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, so there's, there's stuff, stuff going on. Yeah. So, so what Wilhelm Marr did, remember, he's a, he's a newspaper man, and he knows uh, you got to have a good story, and he knows the, the power of words. The term that was commonly used up to this time in Germany to refer to hostility towards Jews was Judenhass, Jew hate. Okay? I don't know. I'm just feeling sort of Jew hate today. Now, the thing about that is that Jew hate sounds sort of... Yeah, it's not very sophisticated. Ignorant. Ignorant. Sounds ignorant. Jew hate. I mean, can't you express that? Well, he said, yes, there is a better way to express this. In fact, I don't, I'm just not animated by Jew hate, which he argued is just come some sort of visceral hostility, some unreasoning uh, hatred. But instead, I have all kinds of very rational scientific reasons not to like Jews. 
It's an organized system of thought, so I'm going to call it an ism. And then I'm not going to call it anti-Jewism, because that's still... No, Jews are what? Remember, we're categorizing people. Jews are part of the Semitic race, you know, along with Arabs, of which there are many more. Therefore, there aren't any Arabs around, so we don't have to worry about them. So right. we're not... Yeah, we're not going to say Jew. We're going to say Semitic, but everyone will know what we're talking about. And we're now we're anti-Semitic because apparently these Semites have negative traits that mean that they can't be Germans. So see, it's not a matter of unreasoning hatred. It's a matter of scientific racial hygiene against a foreign element. Thus, an anti-Semite coins the term anti-Semitism to make it sound sexier, if you will, and more legitimate, as if it's actually a scientific thing. And one of the things that I find very interesting is that everybody, including Jews, bought into this. Hmm. Yeah. So, because think about it. Anytime you use the term anti-Semitism, you mean anti- you do not, you are not as if, well, I'm an anti-Semite, which means that I dislike yeah. Jews and Arabs equally. No. Yeah. And no anti-Semites self-identify as anti-Semites. No, Hardly it's, it's, um, it's a, uh, it's, it, it's, it's this strange sort of mind game of words which has been created and then the thing about anti-semitism is it's a word that doesn't really say what it means but everybody still knows what it means mm -hmm. and thus Wilhelm Marr is the guy who constructed this he he gave us the term anti-semitismus and gave it a certain degree of of gravitas and legitimacy that it wouldn't have had without that and then things just go on from there. Then you've got, you know, Houston Stuart Chamberlain, who's was English, but he wrote, you know, the uh, then began to argue that Jewish emancipation, you know, the, the the emergence of Jews into the mainstream was somehow bad because they were bringing bad biological traits with them. They couldn't really, they couldn't blend in. Even the, in the degree they were blending in made it even worse than than when they weren't doing so before and this by the way i keep talking about germany but i think i'd have to point out if you go back to the 19th even to the early in fact you know prior to the advent of the nazi regime uh anti-semitism was not a viable was not a significant movement in germany um, there was a political party that came into being. Well, there was another one in France that, that called themselves an anti-Semitic party. So you can now come from a whole party, a whole political party, which is just about kind of opposing the influence of those people. Mm. Now, the thing is that party never really got anywhere. I mean, the, the anti-Semitic party, the anti-Jew party in Germany, you know, would draw two or three percent of the vote from some discontented fringe of the population. Um, but it was, it was, it was, wasn't there. It doesn't say there wasn't a kind of widespread, you know, now a, a fairly, a, and often a kind of unconscious suspicion of Jews. But the thing you tend to find in the, in the sort of upper and middle classes is that Jews are advancing in the professions and elsewhere. And they're often doing a great deal to kind of blend in. Mm -hmm. And so now you begin to get two different groups of Jews in European societies. 
you get, especially in Eastern Europe, the Jews who still speak differently, dress differently, or basically under the authority of their rabbis are dominated by rigid Orthodox laws that, that set them apart. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the little you know, things in, in Jewish dietary laws, and, and one of the things that they are effectively intended to do is mean you can't eat with a goyim. And it's, it's a way of sort of discouraging and limiting social contact. Yeah. Even, even setting down to a common meal becomes complicated in some way. So, but now you've got Jews who assimilate. This is the whole, you know, people who would, you know, you don't necessarily leave the religion. You don't convert, but, you know, you get uh, Judaism goes through different changes. In, in Germany, reform Judaism. And in Reform Judaism, that was, which has now become mainstream in much of the West, particularly in the state. And most, I mean, look at the contrast today between Orthodox Jewish communities you can find in Brooklyn or elsewhere. You know, the people who are kind of, you know, got fur hats, walk around in black coats. I mean, can't miss them. Yeah, the, the Hasidic community. The Haredi, Hasidic Jews, yeah. okay, which view themselves as, you know, we're the real Jews. They were sticking with to the law. And someone who's, I don't know, as they would describe it, Jewish. Right. Maybe I had a bar mitzvah, but I don't really go to temple, and I'm not really sure I believe in this. Maybe I'm an atheist. I don't know. I'm kind of culturally Jewish. We like that, you know, you know, we do. But they're, they're not really committed to it at all. So they're, they're huge, and there always were these differences between them. You're, you're never really dealing with a group. One of, the, one of the sort of mythologies from the outside of this one of the tenets of anti-Semitism is that, well, and, and you find it in the protocols of Zion, right? They're all in it together. Right. And therefore, they must all be, think in exactly the same way. Well, that was never the case. If you go back to, you know, the uh, you know, time of, uh, of, of Jesus, you, you, know, you had what? You had Pharisees and Sadducees. You had Hellenized Jews and non-Hellenized Jews. The Essenes. Yeah. I mean, Jesus stuck, stepped right in the middle of that. The, the, the whole, I mean, that, if you look at, remember, it's... There was a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Christianity itself was part of the schisms that were showed a, a disunified group of people. Um, so it's a... The, the standpoint from the anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic term is, is always look upon this as a, as, a, as a single group. Yeah, lump them all in together. Lump them, well, we tend to do this today in, in a lot of things. Yeah. When you tend to think of the, when we tend to think of people as, as parts of some sort of biological continuity, this is where some sort of community over time in which uh, wrongs done to people in the past are wrongs done to people in the present. That these things are kind of inherited. That you inherit grievances. You know, this may never actually happen to you. This has no direct bearing on your life at all. But nevertheless, you you get these kind of grievances. And it was... Uh, and you can find this in more places than you would think. Uh, part of my family is is Irish, very Irish. And therefore, one of the things that uh, I tended to have a certain amount of was sort of anti-English hatred. Okay, The English are evil 
Oh, not 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 the English. Not any English person you know. They're perfectly nice. But the <laughs> English is a kind of conceptual group. Is that there are oppressors, right? And and everything that England ever did, every road they built, every you know, every every sort of thing they did, was was bad. And and you carry this grudge. Okay, this is this is you know you always have to be reminded of this of someone whose great great grandfather was hanged at the gate of their farm by the English with his own belt. You know this this type of thing has to be kept. And I, I don't know. I mean that's all part of our history and heritage. But on the other hand, it does just perpetuate a lot of crap. It sure does. It carries on. Uh, I guess one of the questions would be: Does it help in any way? So I'm not sure. That's a discussion for another time. But what I wanted to do is to, is that is that in many ways it, the Jews become mixed up in this whole thing of emerging ideas of nationality, yeah. and it came to this question: Well, where do we fit exactly? And you know, do we become? So you have the the sort of traditional Orthodox communities that clung to religious law really wanted to maintain a certain degree of separateness. I mean, I mean, uh, if nothing else, the the Jewish clergy wanted that because when your parishioners assimilate, that is, the more German or Polish or Russian they become, mm-hmm. the less authority you have over them. You know, when you are the religious authority that controls every tiny segment of their life, that makes you important. So, generally, assimilation was not viewed by uh, in Orthodox community. That was viewed as a kind of apostasy. Yet on the other hand, much of the European population, you, know, you assimilate because it's practical to do. You want to be a regular person living in a regular society, going about regular things. And it's a, yeah, you don't want to walk down the street in what now appears to be to you as a kind of weird costume with people immediately knowing, or you want to blend in. So, but that itself then created the the question that well is that possible so by the time you get to the or 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 is it is it really going to work because you can blend into a certain point but then also at certain point someone is going to get pissed off or they're going to find some objection and then suddenly you being a jew is going to be significant now here's a case in point and I think it has a direct segue into the protocols. In the 1890s in France, a country which had granted Jews equal political rights in the French Revolution, first European country to do so, not because they loved Jews, but because they figured if we're going to grant rights to everybody, we have to include Jews. You know, it's tolerance again. So we're in declaration of man and citizen. Well, they're humans. They're living in France. Therefore, we have to grant them equal rights. So the there was a fellow by the name of Alfred Dreyfus. Alfred Dreyfus was a career army officer in the French army. Uh, he was also of Jewish Alsatian background. It wasn't a big deal with him. He wasn't particularly religious, but people who worked with him knew that he was a, he was a Jewish Frenchman, as we preferred to put it. But what happened in the 1890s is that Dreyfus became involved in a spy scandal because he became the prime suspect uh, in selling military secrets to Germany. 
which in French is just the worst thing that you could possibly do. Now, the case started out with actually a pretty plausible reason to suspect that Dreyfus was guilty. I mean, there were incriminating de- – I mean, you, you know, a, a detective can come in and build a pretty good case against him. The other thing that didn't seem to help is that probably Alfred Dreyfus didn't seem to have been liked by his colleagues. Uh, that's never underestimate the just power of people liking or disliking you. Because huh? this is what it comes down to. Eventually, if they have to throw somebody to the wolves, they'll pick the person that everybody agrees we don't like very much. And in every group, the rest of you know who that is. If you're completely unaware, you may be the person that everybody doesn't like that much. So Dreyfus wasn't, you know, exactly the easiest. And he had he had personal issues with his his co-workers. There was some reason to suspect him. He was completely innocent. But what happened is that Dreyfus was uh, arrested, convicted by a military trial, sent to Devil's Island, you know, stripped of all of his honors, disgraced. But from the beginning, there were people who argued that he wasn't guilty, including the French army. And, and what went on was this long debate over him trying to restore his reputation. Because eventually what happened is that new evidence was discovered that proved that someone else, not Alfred Dreyfus, was the traitor. So now the point was is that, well, since you've got evidence to the contrary, the case needs to be reopened. I need a retry. I want, I, want to, want, I want all the stuff back that you took away from me. And that's really where what the French army didn't want to do, surprise, surprise, is ever admit that it could make a mistake. Right? Therefore, Dreyfus's, the effort to restore Dreyfus's reputation, to overturn his conviction – and restore his civil rights was then seen in the French army as an attack upon the honor of the army itself. So they fought it tooth and nail. Eventually he did. He was exonerated and restored. He actually returns to service in the French army. But this divided public opinion in France. It divided people into pro-Dreyfusards and anti-Dreyfusards. You either believed that Dreyfus was guilty. And then it became, you see, it became a battle over other things by Dreyfus. But this is when his Jewishness comes to the fore. This is when anti-Dreyfusards looking for reason, well, why do we think this guy is a traitor? Why do we? Because he's not a real Frenchman to begin with. He's a Jew, and Jews aren't really Frenchmen. And therefore, this just shows that a, that a Jew like Dreyfus should never have been put into a position of responsibility, that they are untrustworthy, that they're not really mem- members of the patrie, they don't have the kind of, of patriotic devotion they would have. And so something that really began as a spy scandal more and more revolves around Dreyfus being a Jew, almost as if, his, if that's an indictment against him. So... That divided France, but this is going on in the 1890s, as we're coming up to to the 20th century. But there are other things going on. In the same time period in France, there's a big scandal called the Panama Scandal. So there was a company in France that was trying to build a canal through Panama. And in fact, it's failure to do the Panama scandal is why the Americans eventually stepped in and take this over. But a lot of people had invested in 
the Panama Corporation, and it went bust. And I think I something like four hundred thousand people lost money in this. This this, and of course they're going to have to blame somebody. Now the Panama Company was essentially controlled by a group of financiers, and you know what? Almost all of them had in common. They were all Jewish. They were Jewish. Not all of them, but the ones that got their names in the and most of them were. Uh, people like there actually one of them was an American Jew by the name of Cornelius Hertz, and most of them fled the country. Uh, there was, you know, there were of course a huge crime. But this again was brought up. We see, look at, we find a scandal. We find a scandal which has harmed France and hundreds of thousands of people in it, and we find that the chief people involved in this are Jews. I can't see that too clearly. But. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a political cartoon from the time about the Panama scandal. Yeah, um, yeah. Reinach, Hertz. The other thing about them is they all have German names, which was one of the things that you would, because most right. Jews in France came from Alsace, which was a German speaking region of France, uh, and then it also was somewhere else, you know. Not only are they Jews, but they're German Jews. They're Germans. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in France, right. it's a double whammy. They're Jews and they're Germans. Yeah. I didn't know about this, Rick. I didn't know about this. This was this is totally new to me. So, but then let's add a third element to it. So you got the Dreyfus case, which starts around 1894. You got the Panama scandal, which is a couple of years. Remember, all of them featuring Jews as the chief culprits. Then you've got another thing that doesn't seem to connect, but it does and you got a fellow um uh, he's actually a journalist another journalist um by the name of i think it's leo jogan page but he's better known as leo taxel i was gonna ask oh, yeah. you about i was gonna ask you about this yeah this started in the eight 18- this is the, this is the root of everything right here as far as i'm concerned like the whole all conspiracy theory goes back to taxel so taxel um Again, had a, he had a complicated relationship. He was not Jewish, as far as I know. Jogan Page was not Jewish. but And he's not actually dealing with Jews. Instead, he's dealing with a satanic conspiracy to rule the world, which is the Freemasons. So the other thing, there are lots of Freemasons. In, and, and by the way, Jews were very welcome in French Masonic lodges. Right. They often held high positions within it. So in much of the public mind, I mean, most people aren't free. If you kind of suspect Freemasons, you notice a lot of Jews are Freemasons. But here's what Taxel did. Taxel supposedly was uh, an atheist and an anti-Catholic who then suddenly, you know, got the faith and became a reborn uh, Roman Catholic and started writing stories exposing a satanic Masonic conspiracy. It's great stuff. It's, and it's got – it's this – okay – it's, it's everything. See if this sounds familiar. They sacrifice children. Yeah. Yep. They have they have like these black masses, and there are high priestesses, and they they kill babies, and they drink their blood, and they eat their flesh. This is this, it's PizzaGate. This is where it begins. Doesn't somebody turn into a large lizard? Ah. Uh, well, I think actually, so. yes, yes I, there, yeah. there is there is a version yes, where statues come to life. Um, that that's that's sort of a story inspired by this, but it just gets weirder and weirder. But just you know, it's the devil at work, and then you then this turns a thing like the devil and the uh, you know devil worship in France, which is all connected to the Masons, and they're all marching around with Knights Templars costumes on, uh, with Baphomet. You know, the the 
the the the horn goat god Baphomet that they're all worshiping. And now one of the really weird aspects of this is that Taxel turns the the ultimate evil warlock at the head of the satanic Freemasons as an American Albert Pike. Well, Confederate general, hero of Native American rights. All of those things. Very complicated guy. And and a real Masonic scholar. So uh, but if you ever see the name Albert Pike, it gets mentioned. But, you know, this worked well. So Taxel, you know, picked – and, and the, hinder, the, the center of this entire world satanic Masonic conspiracy is Charleston, South Carolina, just in case you were – On the 33rd parallel, of course. Because why wouldn't it be? Yeah, you know, well, you know, it's exotic. But anyway, these things, you know, they become like these paperbacks and people read them. And again, I think it's around 1896, uh, later 1890s, while the Dreyfus case is in full swing, that eventually this has created such public concern. The Catholic Church, by the way, is completely into this. You know, they're, they're, they're completely committed to the idea that, yes, there is a, uh, you know, we'll go for it because it casts us in a good light. Right, and by the way, we've been saying bad things about Freemasons since 1738. We told you that there was Luciferian about them, and now, see, Brother Leo Taxel has revealed this to us. So he says, "Look, I'm going to have a press conference, and I'm going to bring Diana Vaughn, who's like the high baby killing priestess, and she's she's returned to the folds of the church, and she's going to come confess confess all of her." you know, horrible Pizzagate shenanigans that she's been involved in, in public, on stage, live. And a lot of important people show up, and that's when Taxel gets up and goes, well, you know, uh, Diana Vaughn isn't here because she doesn't exist, and I just made the whole thing up, and you're all a bunch of idiots. And I just wanted to prove how dumb the Pope and everyone else and the the ecclesiastical authorities in France and much of the public was, because you all bought this, this cod swallop, hook, line, and sweet singer, and I just made it up. And you might think that it would end right there, okay? But of course it didn't, because some people are so. Com- Remember, it was a story they wanted to believe. Yeah, he had, he had constructed what he had constructed an elaborate, believable narrative, and even when he told them to their face that it was a lie, this was too good of a story to give up on. Clearly, he's now gone over to the other side. This was all some sort of diabolical, of course, Masonic trick to convince us first by telling us the true story, then by telling us that it's not true when it actually is true. So this is why today you can find many people who will accept the tax. And so the story, and this is why it's a template for the protocols, because no matter how many times you can demonstrate that it's false, or at least that it's in any ways, not what it is that it's claimed to be, that it's an invention they're so committed to that story that they will continue to believe in it. And this, this is what I think when you put these things together, that the origins of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion come out of 1890s France. I and nobody else can tell you exactly how or exactly by whom, but that's the soup out of which it was created. And this is where you begin. It's this kind of blending of the Panama scandal and the Dreyfus case and the Taxel hoax. And you begin to put real things into – see, you could kind of put Dreyfus 
and the corrupt Jewish financiers in the Panama scandal together if you assume that they're all part of some larger Jewish conspiracy. Taxel has shown us how you can create a narrative about a large conspiracy. So pretty much that's where it was cobbled together. And the the political upheavals of the 19th century with uh, secret societies being involved in them, many of those like the Freemasons who do have at least, um, you know, claimed lineages to uh, Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, uh, that that's later going to kind of come up and, and, and Illuminism too, of course. So you have that tied, that political intrigue and revolutionary uh, movements tied into secret societies that have some kind of purported connection to Jewish mysticism. You've got, well, you've got in, in France, for instance, and it, it wouldn't be the only case in France, Freemasons are, you know, as they would argue that they're not an occult order. They're not specifically interested in mysticism, but a lot of people in Freemasonry were. Yeah. And therefore there's a lot of overlap between these two things. So there was, you know, that we don't want to say occultism, so we'll say esotericism, but there was a lot of mystic mumbo jumbo that found its way into French Freemasonry and elsewhere. And then there was also the political angle. And one of the things about Freemasonry, certainly in France at that time, or pretty much anywhere else in continental Europe, is that it was also widely connected to the political left. Freemasonry was identified with free thinking, liberalism, cosmopolitanism. Remember, one of the things it aspired to was a world brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Freemasonry right. doesn't recognize religion or nationality or race. Which is why it gets it gets equated with communism later on. Yeah, it's it's a um, yeah. um, well. In in fact, you know, I was just reading today about. Uh, Freemasons in early Soviet Russia in the 1920s, who to basically keep the lodges from being suppressed, decided they were going to create a sort of red Freemasonry. Oh, wow. That is, they were going to argue that, see, Freemasonry and communism are are one and the same. Because we all aspire to universal brotherhood. And look, we also have this whole thing about five-pointed stars. (laughs) I wonder if the I wonder if the John Birch Society ever got a hold of that material. Oh, I'm sure they did. But the interesting thing is that these these are actual Freemasons who are trying to who are selling this idea. See, right, we're all right. we're all we've always been Bolsheviks at heart. Uh, by the way, it didn't help. Uh, all the lodges were banned in 1926 anyway. Yeah, I was going to say I don't think they survived uh, too long before. Uh, probably ended up in the gulag. Every member of the Red Freemasons was ultimately arrested. Okay, for anti-Soviet activities, but. Um, so, but there are all of these, but, you know, so, so it, Freemasonry was connected to political radicalism. It was connected to cosmopolitanism. And the other thing is that again, Jews often had very, very prominent roles within it. So an example of that would be, I think he died in the 1880s, but a man who had been kind of a major figure in French Freemasonry through much of the 19th century was a fellow by the name of Adolphe Cremieux. And Adolphe Cremieux was the kind of the grand ultimate poobah Freemason in France uh, in the later years. And he became the head of the 
of the Grand Orient, which was the biggest Masonic lodge. And, and he was also in one of the kind of side issues of Freemasonry, one of the more esoteric higher rites called the Scottish Rite, which, by the way, Albert Pike was yeah. also involved in. And so Cremieux was, became the head of the Scottish Rite, uh, one of the modern figures in the, in the main, you know, he was one of the stars in the Masonic firmament. And he was a Jew and he was the founder of one of the first sort of pan-Jewish organizations called the Alliance Israelite Universelle, the the Universal Israelite Alliance, which was specifically to protect Jewish rights uh, within France. So he was very publicly a Jewish activist, very publicly a Freemason, and becomes the kind of poster boy, positively and negative, for these two things. Now, the other thing interesting about Adolf Cremieux is that through much of his career, he was also a friend. He was a close collaborator with a man by the name of Maurice Jolie. And it's Maurice Jolie. So Jolie and Cremieux had known each other for years. And first they were buddies and they were, they were politically simpatico. Later in life, they feuded and fell out because Maurice Jolie eventually feuded with everyone. He's one of these people who, who always would end up fighting with their friends. He had no friends by the time he died. I mean, he would challenge people to duels. He'd punch people. <laughs> he, had, he had a bad temper, and he would get angry. So early on, back in the 1850s, France was, had more political problems, and you had the rise of another Napoleon, Napoleon III, the nephew of the first one, who first became... A, a liberal president of France, and then decided that wasn't enough and proclaimed himself Emperor Napoleon III. Well, Jolie and Cremieux had early on been supporters of the presidential Napoleon, but then became very harsh critics and political enemies of the Emperor Napoleon. So probably partly encouraged by Cremieux, Jolie around eight. 1864, I'm not sure if I have that date right, somewhere around 1860, wrote a little book, really a pamphlet, called Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, which is one of these things, you know, supposedly a dialogue between two dead characters. It's a literary device, and so they'll, they'll talk to each other. But what it really was was a political attack on Napoleon III. And, you know, Machiavelli is sort of justifying what the emperor does and giving all these kind of ways in which we will undermine the republic and create an empire. You know, Napoleon III is a bad guy. So one of the things that Jolie demonstrated in that, he was, he was a pretty good political, he was a polemicist. He was someone who could write, uh, you know, fairly readable, nasty things about, about political figures. So he and Cremieux were, were buddy buddies on this, but later they feuded. Pretty much what happened is that Cremieux was successful and Jolie wasn't. And so Jolie then became increasingly to hate his former friend and turned on him. Died fairly young, though. But, but here's the significance of this dialogue in hell. Because one of the things that you notice in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion that will emerge decades later is that it's, it's heavily based on this dialogue in hell. So Jolie's fingerprints are all over it. 
So what this is usually the the common story is that well the the protocols are um, just a a forgery. They're just kind of plagiarism. They just sort of plagiarized this earlier work. And the thing about the protocols is that I'm not sure that plagiarism or forgery really describes what it is. Because the protocols don't take the same form as that they're not a dialogue between people. It's just one person talking. They're supposedly notes of a meeting. That's what they're supposed to be. Right. They're they're the note takers notes of this. So they have a very different format. And the interesting thing about it is that about 40%, if you were to simply take all the words in the protocols, you'd find that about 40% of them come from the dialogue or, or they're there, but they're, they do so in snippets. It's not like whole sections are lifted. Uh, a fellow who went through a, a historian of the protocols, uh, an Italian, uh, really linguist, Cesare de Michaelis went through and essentially counted all these up. And there are 309 different snippets of this 1860s dialogue in hell that are then sort of just scattered throughout the protocols. So if it's not the sort of usual sort of play, it's almost as if in what it looks like to me, the best way I could describe it is that someone who was very familiar with the protocols was writing this other work and they were just using it to get phrases out of. That's what they were doing. It was was like Mm -hmm. a dictionary. They They were going through it and they're going, I like those words and I'll bring them in here because they're just kind of scattered in some cases they're sparse but it's not necessarily a straight copy no it's not a straight copy it's just it's like you were using think of it this way you want to write a story and you you've got a book you know apparently i don't know you don't think you have any talent or something else and you've got another book over here and you're just sort of lifting lines from it that's what they're doing they're just lifting lines and phrases and inserting them That's one of the things, to get ahead a bit, that leads me to think, I think the actual version of the protocols, the the kind of template, the the crude kind of lump of clay out of which it was created, was created by the same guy that wrote the dialogues. I think that Jolie wrote it before his death in the late 1870s as an attack on his former friend Cremieux. And that's why he adds. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was never published, but his son, who also became a journalist, inherited his papers, and his son Charles Jolie is later acquainted with a lot of the people who were probably involved in the fact, or could have been involved. And I think that's what the transmission was. Mm-hmm. But I think it really sort of began with an embittered Jolie who was going to attack his former friend and Masonic buddy, Cremieux, and then it was adapted for another purpose under the influences of the of the scandals in the 1890s that we've seen. So he wrote it and it was forgotten about and somebody found it, essentially. His son probably yeah. found it, gave it to somebody else, and then – and who knows what it originally – I mean – if you actually look in most copies of the protocols, you'll find that the note taker, the person who's writing it, will sign it as a representative of the 33rd degree. Right, right. Which is masonry, yeah. Well, but it's Scottish right masonry. 33rd right, degree right. is the highest level in that. And Adolf Cremieux 
was the supreme 33rd degree in France. So it's almost naming him in some way. So remember, it's it's not just Jews, it's not just Freemasons, it's apparently Scottish Rite Freemasons. And also remember that the Scottish Rite was the same group that was said to be the center of this Masonic satanic conspiracy in the Taxel hoax. Right. Yeah, it's but I just you know, you can just mix all of these things together. But it you can see that someone remember what I said earlier about you create a narrative. You've got a few facts and then you just build the story around it. So you can change you can change it for this, you know, it can be the Freemasons are the bad guys or the Jews the bad guys or is it Jewish Freemasons or Masonic Jews? I don't know. Which it's, one do you want to pick? It's a Mad Lib. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a Mad yeah. Lib. So the first place this thing actually shows up is in an obscure Russian right-wing and by right-wing in this sense, I mean fanatically monarchist newspaper in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1903. It's not a book. It's a series of newspaper articles. It's serialized, and it's serialized under the title The Protocols of the World Alliance of Freemasonry and the Sages of Zion. So Masons actually get lead billing in this. Right. And it's an alliance of Freemasons. And and whatever the sages of Zion are, um, it, it's kind of implied there's some group of Jews. But it, it, as time goes on, what happens is that the Masonic references fade away. And this is what I meant by different versions of the protocols. And the mm-hmm. ones that particularly appear, the ones that Henry Ford, after 1919, got his hands on, are much more focused on Jews and barely say anything about Freemasons. Whereas they pretty much start talking about this sages of Zion as working through Freemasonry to achieve their goal, just like the Satanists in Charleston, South Carolina did. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're doing. Once again, it's the Masons who are the vehicle for some greater conspiracy. All you've done is change devil worshipers with Jews. So somebody knew all of these parts. It first shows up there. Then it gets picked up by this fellow, Sergei Nilas, who includes another edited version in a book in 1905. This is the one that everybody thought was the original one, and it's not. Because one of the things about this first version showing up in a newspaper in 1903 is that it completely destroys the later narratives about the creation of the work in 1905. Because later you'll get women, um, you get Catherine Radziwill, and she'll emerge in the early 20s, and she'll claim that she was present in a room in Paris in 1904 or early 1905, and she actually saw two members of the Imperial Russian Secret Police forging it, copying things from one book onto another. And so she saw its creation. Now, that story is still widely, that's the most common story we'll hear about it. But now you know that that can't be, you cannot create a work in 1904 that was already published in 1903. Right. Yeah. So anyway, Catherine Radziwill was a, you know, a serial liar um, who didn't know what she was talking about. The, The two people she said were doing this are demonstrably not even in Paris at the time. 
and neither of them were working for the Russian secret police at the time. <laughs> so she describes this whole scene that never happened and could not have happened because the very people – furthermore, figure this. You're working for the Russian secret police and you're going to forge some sort of a secret document and this woman that you don't really know just waltzes in and you let her stand around and watch – it doesn't. It doesn't make much sense. You, See, that's a bad story. You'd think the Okrana would have more sense than that. Well, so. and then and then try this on. I mean, remember the the whole premise of the protocols is that the notes of a meeting. So you're going to come up with this whole plan to subvert societies and overthrow existing religions and societies and institute some kind of I don't know creepy one world government uh, with you in charge and first. You're going to write it down. Okay. First rule of conspiracy, never write things down. <laughs> just, right. like, just like never keep a diary will come back to haunt you. Okay. Of course, now it's in your Facebook page, <laughs> which comes back to haunt people all the time. But so you're going to – first of all, you're going to record in, in all these details, step-by-step instructions of what you're doing. Like the members don't already know. You know, is the possibility? Then you're gonna you're gonna hide it somewhere where someone can steal it and publish it. That's not very clever. I don't know what kind of world conspiracy you got going here, but if it's that easy to see, steal your secret plan, then you weren't. And but then furthermore, you talk about the whole thing in this kind of like, now right, we're going right. to do this. Now we're going to get them. Oh, the stupid goyim! They'll never catch on what we're doing. Let me explain our next nefarious trick. Who does that? I mean, the, the, the whole, the, the very, if there is a real conspiracy as described, that you would never, you would never do that. I mean, the one thing that speaks against the legitimacy of the conspiracy is the fact that you would never actually write down your plans. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, if it's, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is not. Yeah, but see, yeah. when people want to believe something, that just doesn't matter. It doesn't, right. And that's, um... So they're going to, but see this just, it just, yeah, people could glom onto this because it had all the ingredients. It had Freemasons, well, they're great. It had Jews, all of your, all of the fears, suspicions, whatever else you might have, everything you would want to have, a scapegoat, there it is, it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. It's self generating. It all, it all goes back to this. It explains, it, it, the, the thing about a successful narrative is it explains something that someone once explained. And the protocols purported to explain what was at the root of all the things that, that, are, that are in trouble, all the things that you can see going on. And it had as its central villains, Masons and Freemasons, people who were also widely held in generalized suspicion. But here's another way in which, if you go back to the, to the anti-Jewism, anti-Semitism thing about it, it, and the idea of sort of creating groups of people in which you have collective responsibility, collective genius, and collective guilt. So I was just talking to a friend of mine who's actually Jewish, by the way, the other day about this. And it was, um, you know, I, I'd have to say, in many of his interesting ideas, he, he's a bit of a Jewish supremacist. There you go. In that, you know, he really takes the idea, his, his argument being is that, you know, Jews have contributed all of these things. And we've really sort of, you know, his, was, I think if he has one drink too many, it's pretty much like we pretty much created Western civilization. 
Okay. And you going and just aren't really, you know, you should thank us for all the things that we've done because Jews have really sort of created your civilization for you. If you didn't have us to manage your economies, then what would happen? No, clearly you can't do this for yourself. I was asking him, yeah, are you really kind of serious about that? So just, just as an example that things don't, you know, from the other side, you tend to get much the same sort of view. But I think he sort of likes to play around with this idea or at least be provocative with it because he certainly knows it will piss people off very quickly <laughs> if you start saying that. But it's, you know, the, the view that I would sort of throw back to him, I go, look, races don't create things. Nations don't create things. Individuals do it. So William Shakespeare, who was English, wrote a number of pretty good plays. The English didn't write the plays. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, actually. It's, you know, yeah. he did it. it. Genius tends to be individual. Yeah. But there is this, and notice the way, what the Nazis made it. They were always about, about German literature, German science. You know, Wagner wrote German music, mm -hmm. as if in some way we all somehow shared in this. Right. Um, you know, Wagner liked to think he was writing German music, but it was all stuff that, who, and he also didn't think Jews could write music. <laughs> so if you're looking for another anti-Semite, Richard Wagner is one of those. Uh, that was his whole complaint. There were Jewish magicians yeah. in Germany who were composing music, and he thought that because they weren't actually Germans, this wasn't really German music, because there's now a thing which is German music, which has some sort of like intrinsic German qualities to it that a Jew can never express, because they can only express Jewish qualities, because this is all part of their DNA in some respects. See where science gets us? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Wagner was a huge influence on Hitler and the Nazis. Yes, that's well. I mean, lots of people like Wagner's music. Wagner was the soundtrack to the Third Reich. Some Karl Orff right. too. Yes, it is the soundtrack. You don't have to be a Nazi to love Wagner, but I think it helps. So, but it's but they were you know this is why you you know physics is a Jewish science. This is notice the way in which everything is categorized. Uh, you know, psychotherapy is a Jewish science. Well, Sigmund Freud was Jewish, Adler was Jewish, lots of, you know. Uh, but if you don't like it, that's one of the ways that you connect it to something else that you don't like. And that, but this, this categorization of, of things. And it's, there were, also to keep in mind, there were people who were in the public eye who were Jewish who did bad things. So uh, the the financiers involved in the Panama scandal, um, you know, they, they cheated lots of people. They were dishonest men. In but this concept of sort of collective guilt somehow argues this is this is one of the key ingredients in something like anti-Semitism. This is something we have to watch for. If one does it all are somehow implicated or guilty in it. So whatever sins this particular Jew has committed, whatever wrong or transgressions they have done, all other Jews are responsible for that simply by being Jews because this is somehow an expression of a kind of generalized category. And this is one of the things you find. It's always like, well, the Jews do this, the Jews do that. It's like all of them. I mean, it's never the idea that it's a particular group of Jews. Right. 
It's always this overarching conspiracy of everybody. Well, I mean, you could you could create a narrative in which the sages of Zion are some group of Jews. I mean, some secret society of people who call themselves the sages of Zion. There have been groups. I mean, remember, Jesus and the apostles were a group of Jews in one, one, one room together. Who's to say? I mean, I see absolutely no evidence there ever were, but if there were a group of Jews of one description or another who formed a secret society and came up with this kind of, of, of plan, the only thing that would actually indicate is that they did it. It then somehow doesn't expand. I mean, to Shlomo Greenberg, who's a tailor living on a side street in Warsaw somewhere, what does he have to do with this? Mm-hmm. Right. You just lump everybody together into one into one thing. And by the time that you get, by the time that you get to the third Reich, they're seen as like this ulcer on the body politic or on the German nation. And it's, yeah. They somehow all become Rothschilds. Right. And right. I remember the, the, um, you know, well, someone else would have said, you know, well, when did we all become Rothschilds? Right. What, when, when did this happen? Because, you know, I've never, you know, I, I'm not a banker. My father isn't a banker. My father runs a furniture store. Right, and he's gone bankrupt. He's not even that good of a businessman. So, how, how did we all become Rothschilds? And so, how did we lump into? Well, the Rothschilds were rich and they were visible and they were Jews. And see, that combines a number of things. I mean, most people who aren't rich don't like rich people. Yeah. Let's face it. There is an ingrained prejudice against the wealthier, and they want to they want a reason why they might be poor. Uh, we all know why people get rich. Either they were lucky, or they were dishonest in some way. Okay. The the old uh, saying that behind every great fortune is a great crime. Well, they're rich and you aren't, so that's got to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> Otherwise, they're either clever or smarter or luckier than you are, and nobody wants to think of it that way. So apparently, they're just slime balls. That's 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 how you get rich in this case. Well, and you know, most Jews in emancipated Europe didn't become rich. People who were poor stayed poor. People who were middle class stayed middle class. Some people rose up, and then you had very prominent figures, the Rothschilds and and other prominent banking families. And um, once I actually tried to do a, a total of those, if you went through and you look at Jewish banking families in in early twentieth century Europe, what do you come up with? Well, you might come up with at most stretching a hundred families. You're coming up with a few thousand people, maybe a few tens of thousands of people out of a population of 12 million. Yeah, that's it's not overrepresented. Yeah. Well, they're they're indicative of it. They're also they're also generally cousins of each other, which is that there is a great deal. The Rothschilds were very keen about in marrying other Rothschilds, not even other Jews. They weren't interested in them. They would marry other Rothschilds because it was a way of keeping money within within the family. And it does – there's a term uh, – it's kind of – I'm probably going to mispronounce it, uh, mishpuka. Um, sometimes here in movies, it comes up. Mishpuka is sort of the original circle of trust, and it is either mm, Yiddish Hebrew term that, it, that basically means a, a, a group of people within a family or, or people or friends within the family. You don't have to be related to someone to be mishpuka, but it helps. Usually it's a kind of cousinhood. And that's the type of thing that if you look at the Rothschilds and other of these families, you will find. There's a great deal of of cousin-to-cousin marriages. Very often you're marrying your cousin because it reinforces these ties. You, you have a certain loyalty 
here's something you can generally see. We may not necessarily get along with our, I mean, some people out there may be completely estranged from your families, but otherwise, but that's a source of pain usually because you don't want to be. Our family members, after all, aren't they the people that we can borrow money from and never pay it back and they'll still speak to us because they have to? Right. Have, have you ever done that? <laughs> I mean, certainly your parents <laughs> all mooched off our parents for, for years, probably longer than we would have. But that's part, you know, that's that's the mush book. You know, there, there's, a, there's a thing within families. There are things that are allowable, There's a but there's also a kind of loyalty and sense of responsibility. And when people look at the Rothschilds, this banking dynasty, and they see a Jewish conspiracy, what you're actually looking at is a mishpucha. You're looking at this cousinhood. You're looking at this extended family that has nothing to do with any Jews or Gentiles outside of it, but which is interested in promoting its own interests from within. But if you somehow assume that Jews are sort of the king, or rather the Rothschilds are the kings of 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 Jewry, then their actions become associated with everyone else. They're only working for themselves. They're not. They're not really working for anyone else in that case. But it makes a good narrative. Absolutely. And then you explore how the the Nazis actually start to use the protocols as well, but they change it in their own way. Well, the Nazis start out. The Nazis are um, the National Socialists. We always have to remember what that stands for. Here's one of the interesting things to do, and somebody who's curious. Go out. You can find it on the web. Look at the 25-point program of the Nazi Party. This, this was the actual political platform of German National Socialism. Uh, appears, I think it written for him in early 1921. Hitler played a role in formulating it, but so did other people at the time. And if you read through this 25-point program you could, in many cases, assume that a Bolshevik had written it because it calls for things like the nationalization of industry, uh, the massive expansion of social benefits, the breakdown of class barriers, the abolition of the old army and the abolition of the aristocracy, the creation of a people's army. And so and that's, that's where the socialism comes in to national socialism and I, this isn't a diatribe for or against socialism it's just noting that's what it was based on right that, that, that term right. is there for it for a particular reason and and the big reason for that was that one of the things the nazis and those supporting the nazis used them as was as a count of counter-communism not anti-communism but counter-communism that is something that would appeal to the German working class in terms that would be familiar to them, that would offer them a kind of socialist program along with a nationalist program. Because Marxist communist communism was essentially internationalist. Yeah, that's, that's the distinction. International yeah. socialism as opposed to national socialism. But still many of the same. So, so if you read through that and you try to look, well, when do I get to the part where they want to kill all the Jews? You'll never really find it because it's not in there. They do point out, here's where this thing comes up. They will point out that Jews, because they are biologically of a different stock, cannot be Germans. Therefore, they cannot be citizens of the Reich. They can live in Germany as aliens, 
but they must they cannot live here as citizens and they cannot enjoy political rights because biologically they are not germans uh they also complained against what they uh, they that that nazism is opposed to the materialistic spirit of uh of jewishness this again is sort of adding in, you know, the idea that Jews are connected with materialism. So it's an interesting sort of situation that, that if you actually look at the program, uh, the the anti-Jewish angle doesn't figure very prominently. It's almost a kind of afterthought. Jews are aliens. They have a distinct culture. They're not really Germans. But on the other hand, they'll then turn around and say, but we guarantee the right of everybody to practice whatever religion they want to. And and that is what they, the Nazis were never really about suppressing the practice of Judaism. They never did. That was, see, in the Third Reich, it was not a crime to practice the religion of Judaism. They were completely indifferent to it. The crime eventually becomes being biologically a Jew. So, therefore, whether you are a Lutheran, a Catholic, or an Orthodox Jew, if you have three Jewish grandparents, you're a Jew. Now, if you have less than that, then you're this kind of Michelin cat. I mean, they actually create these kind of, you know, the mestizo categories, literally. Michelin of the first degree, Michelin of the second degree, whether you just have, you're half Jewish or you're quarter Jewish. And that's different than being Jewish. So it's like Las, Las Castas in uh, Spanish Americas or the uh, Creole systems also. Yeah, it is creating this sort of gradations of Jewishness. And and, and Michelings were not – they enjoyed um, – they didn't suffer as many restrictions as Jews did because legally – it becomes this legal classification. And – it's, so if you were of mixed ancestry, that could be ultimately a kind of advantageous thing to do. And the same way what the Nazis do initially, this is not to portray the Nazis as being nice, but uh, they, they do not take power in 1933 and go around and get Jews and start killing them. What they do is begin to destroy them economically. Mm-hmm. And that is to go after, to bar them from professional, you know, introduce quotas – uh, here's a way to go about it. Uh, a Jews were in in Germany were highly represented in certain professions. A lot of bankers, indeed, they were highly represented in banking. Uh, about a quarter of all bank. Remember, Jews represent less than one percent of the population. About a quarter of prominent people in in banking. Um, I think about 10% of lawyers equal number of doctors. Now, most, if you don't want a Jewish doctor, you can easily find someone who isn't. But what it means is that they, they, and often owning sort of small businesses. So Jews economically were not evenly, you didn't find Jewish farmers. I'm sure there must've been some somewhere, but that wasn't something you found. You tended to find Jews in business and the professions. And part of that had to do is that back in the old days, Jews couldn't own land. Therefore, you went into professions where land ownership wasn't net. You went into the professions or you went into business, buying and selling. 
The other thing is that people always have to buy things and sell things, and therefore you do business with each other. Here's, here's another one of the, the sayings I like, which is that civilization is really just a way of doing business. It's a way that people buy and sell things to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to like them or anything else. It doesn't require friendship, sympathy, or anything else. It just depends upon whether you're getting the best deal from that person. Right. And again, if you think about it, probably in your lifetime, you have done business, probably profitable business, with someone you otherwise despise. Yep. Why? Because they had the best deal at the time. So what the Nazis did is they simply began to advocate boycotts of Jewish goods, you know, buy German, don't buy Jewish. Um, and, but if, think of this if you were a Jewish doctor and there is now a law passed, as there was, that says you can only treat Jewish patients. That is a Jewish doctor, you cannot have non-Jewish patients. Well, you've now lost most of your patients. So economically, it's no longer viable. You know, no matter how good of a heart surgeon you are, you can't operate anybody who's who is considered to be an Aryan. So that uh, those kind of limitations, uh, the forced Aryanization of businesses, that is, will put in greater taxes, and you, unless you sell your business off to an Aryan owner, you have to transfer ownership. And so what happened between 1933 and 1940 is that most of the Jews in Germany left. So in 1933, in a population of around 65 million there were about there's slightly over more than half a million Jews. That's all there were in Germany. There are about 500,000 people. By the time you get to 1940 or 1941, uh, that's dwindled to less than 200,000, under about 160,000. And now, now many of them, you know, fled to other countries where they would fall under Nazi rule later. But it was quite, and that was done ostensibly without violence. It was done by simply destroying the ability of people to earn a living by categorizing them as a separate group and then imposing limitations on that group. And also they lost their civil rights. And then there were sort of added, you know, the sort of petty humiliations that you had to walk around announcing to everybody that you were a Jew, um, that if you were Jewish, you know, if you were a woman, you had to take the middle name Sarah. Um, I can't remember what it was for a man. It was whether it was Moses or, or David, but you, you, you had to, you know, so everything, every, document you have would clearly identify you. And that was necessary because Jews really weren't distinguishable from other Germans. I mean, it wasn't, there was not any real huge physical difference between the two of them. You would not otherwise have been recognizable. So that was part of the process. The, the interesting thing about the the advent of the Holocaust, another one of those terms, which really we're talking about is a massacre of European Jews. That's what it was. It was a massacre. When this process that had been basically been this kind of incremental economic disassociation, when it turns violent, and it's, it's a... Um, it's one of those questions, again, that I don't think can be entirely answered. It does have to do with the advent of the war. One of the things to note is that the mass killing begins after the war begins. So it becomes part of this larger, you know, one of the things you do during wars, you kill lots of people. You know, mass, massive destruction is, okay. And those two things are, are tied up together. 
But, you know, really what the Nazis were building upon is the same thing that Richard Wagner and Wilhelm Marr developed back in the 19th century, which was that on the new basis of of the science of genetics, Jews weren't Germans, and therefore they are some kind of alien presence in our midst. Yeah, and the imagined communities um, having some kind of racial basis and questioning whether they could have loyalty to that country because they are and they are and and they and they are all some way culpable for what others do therefore if public wrongs are committed by jews all other jews jews are in some way responsible for that it becomes the the crimes of specific individuals like the genius of specific individuals then somehow becomes the property of everybody within that community and, and they became seen as a contagion. The Nazis viewed Jews essentially as a social disease. They, they were a form of cancer. They were a disease organism that was unhealthy and would infect and destroy other things around them. In other words, they're not, they're not neutral. They're not just this group of people who are weird and you can ignore them. Instead, they are harmful. And there's a kind of logic to that. So think of it this way. What do you do with cancer? Do you just wall off the cancer cells in a ghetto where they can subsequently escape? Do you negotiate with them? Do you make some kind of a deal? No, you destroy them. You destroy every single one of them because that's the only way to get rid of the contagion. And that, I think, was the kind of logic which had been growing for some time. But eventually, you know, if you formed in your mind that these people, that this group of people are, are collectively aliens, they are not part of us, they are furthermore a dangerous form of contamination, how can I be safe from them? The only way that we can be safe is to kill every single one of them. And then that logic under the right circumstances, emerges. So it's a, and you could certainly go back, you know, you could go back to the Middle Ages, the 14th century, on and on, and you can find in different places periodic massacres of, of Jews. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in Tsarist Russia, you can find those in the late 19th century, they're called pogroms. Those are what, I mean, Probably the great majority of Jewish Americans today can trace your ancestry back to what was the Russian Empire. You know, they I call it Poland or you know, Ukraine, but it was all Russia at the time. And that was because it was uh, Russia who well into the 20th century maintained restrictions on Jews. Jews were not emancipated in Russia. You could still do quite well if you knew the right people. But there were still legal restrictions against Jews. There was also a widespread prejudice, which wasn't unique to Russia, but it was, it was this, as it grew sort of increasingly violent as there were these attacks that, that came out, you know, what in this country would be called race riots. And pretty much, you know, a gang of thugs would go into the Jewish area of town and they'd uh, rob stores, beat people up, rape women and kill men. Maybe not a lot of people, but enough where you kind of got the message of what was going to happen. And that set off, you know, 
the movement of millions of people, literally, out of Russia. Half the Jewish population in the Russian Empire had left, and you know, most of them ended up in New York and never went any further than that, were spread elsewhere. And that's why you would tend to find that's how most of the Jewish population in the United States arrived here. It was in response to that that kind of, of persecution. So the protocols were, I mean, why did Henry Ford embrace the protocols? Well, he'd had bad experience with bankers, and many of those bankers were Jews. And therefore, again, he equated those two things together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd also had some bad personal, really. During World War One, Henry Ford, well-intentioned, and Henry Ford, again, is, is a complicated guy. But he he created a thing called the peace ship. You know, Europe is at war. The United States isn't in it. And he chartered a Scandinavian ocean liner and with a lot of journalists and other people on board. He was going to anchor it off the coast of Sweden. And then he was going to invite the war, representatives of the warring state to come and negotiate peace. They should have done that. It actually was a good idea. The whole world would have been better off if they'd done what Henry Ford wanted them to do. But the whole thing proved a huge embarrassment because that didn't happen, and he was mocked and ridiculed, and Henry Ford didn't like to be mocked and ridiculed, and then he began to look at the people he thought were responsible for talking him into doing this stupid thing that he got embarrassed for, and those were people like Herman Berenstein and Rosico Schwimmer, and a lot of them were Jews, and therefore he goes, ah, see, this is what Jews got me into. That's what those people managed to talk me into because I was what I thought was a good idea at the time. But now this is all connected to um, – and then he puts it together with you know this particular other banker he didn't like. And then the protocols come along, and this just seems to explain everything. I mean Henry Ford in his life had had personal problems with people who were Jewish. Well, he had personal problems with politicians, bankers, and newspaper men, but the fact that they were Jews somehow made this a Jewish issue, and the protocols seemed to uh, provide a framework for that. So he bought a newspaper uh, at, with a subscription base of 70,000 people, and in four years, by flogging the story, you know, Jew, the international problem, the international Jew, and the problem of the modern world, it went to 700,000. It was a popular message. Sold a lot of Ford cars, some of them to Jews. <laughs> yeah, was is it true that you got a copy of the protocols when you bought a, uh, like the Model T? You got? I don't know if you got a copy of it. Remember, the protocols go through lots of versions. I think he means the International Jew Ford's book. The International Jew, which was his sort of reworking of those themes. It's a you know the International Jew isn't like a copy of the protocols, but it's clearly takes off where they, it's, it's an effort to sort of explain this. And I mean, even, even Winston Churchill gets into this, although Winston Churchill in a newspaper editorial in 1920, you can find this somewhere, makes a very clear distinction between good Jews and bad Jews. And to him, good Jews are nationalist Jews, Zionists, so Zionists are good Jews because, you see, they're good nationalist Jews. They just want to have a country. They're just patriots. Whereas international Jews, well, those are people like Trotsky. Okay, oh, Those okay. are all the commie Jews. Those are the ones who don't want Interesting. Yeah, I never, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. So, so Zionists are good Jews because they're doing huh. what Jews should do, and they're not. But then today, somehow, Zionists get – okay, it's just – Very convoluted, yeah. Yes, but he he thought that they they were great. Uh, there just weren't enough of them, and um, 
but that international Jews were the, were the source of Bolshevism. And he argued that Bolshevism was in some way a, a if not a Jewish-inspired movement, it was conspicuously led by Jews. Now, there are a lot of Jews. Yeah, and with, with the, um, the issues, you know, a lot of Jews had with, you know, having their national identity accepted, it seems natural that a lot of them would be attracted to internationalist movements like communism. Well, see, one of the things, I mean, let, let's take, um, you can find it elsewhere. One of the things that, that communism or socialism offered was that it offered the idea of a future utopia in which things like being Jewish didn't exist. Yeah. Remember, just like Marx had said, if you change the pre the economic system that created the Jewish parasitic class, Jews will cease to exist. They will just blend into the proletarian masses. So the same idea was that you would simply create a, a world without Jews by becoming part of something else. And, and it's true. If you look at people, I mean, Leon Trotsky is a great example of this. He's, he's born, he, he, both of his parents are Jewish. His mother's, you know, his father's, you know, not religious at all. Um, his mother's family is probably to some degree, but his mother's brothers all become successful capitalists. So one of the interesting things about Trotsky is that all of his his favorite uncle in the whole world, Abram Zhivatovsky, is is a millionaire stockbroker capitalist and, you know, actually a, a very clever but probably somewhat underhanded guy. <laughs> yeah, I read yeah, I was I remember reading about him in your Wall Street book. He's, yeah. You know, the Zhivatovskys are just really sort of cutthroat capitalists. Uh, but their nephew is this Marxist revolutionary. But see, that's the he's their nephew. So the question comes down is why would Uncle Abram send money to his nephew who believes in a political philosophy that would essentially destroy the entire economic system that Uncle Abram's wealth comes from? Well, because he's his nephew, he's his sister's son, Abram took a shine to the boy when he grew up and you know took him fishing, that's why. See, it's not a Marxist revolutionary who's asking you for money in order to further communism. It's your nephew who needs some money to pay the rent, and so you help him. It's a personal family thing. Right. It's, it's, it's not a Jewish conspiracy. You can call it a family conspiracy, but then really every family is a conspiracy. <laughs> that's, <laughs> no. well said. That's, a, that's, that's a really, really good point. If anybody in your family ever told you, don't tell anybody in the family about this, don't talk about things that happen in the family, well, that's a conspiracy because it's two people working together. To... So, but yeah, that, that's, I think this is the, you know, in the same way that you don't have to look for, I mean, let's take Arnold Rothstein, there, Meyer Lansky. Mm -hmm. Murder Inc. Um, you know, yeah, Louis Lepke. <laughs> You can find plenty of them. If you want to look around and you want to find uh, Leopold and Loeb, there are plenty of Jewish criminals, but there are plenty of criminals of any sort of court. They, those individuals can be right. those crimes. Right. But then you can turn around what 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 the what you can call anti-Semitism or anti-Jewism does is it takes those individuals and it makes their crimes somehow symptomatic of the behavior of all Jews. It becomes Jewish qualities, not the qualities of the individual. 
with Dr. Dr. Smith, Smith, we see see how all all these kind of memes and like, you know, I just want to take a little bit to talk about just like, you know, what's going on with QAnon right now. I mean, this whole adrenochrome thing and how that's essentially blood libel and how it's just still kind of persists these, these, these kind of tropes. It's the blood libel and it's the taxel hoax all rolled up in one. Yes, but, I yes. Mean, but if you go back and you look at those things, in particular, that you'll see that there's nothing new about this. And and this is the thing yes. that you nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under this, but it's it's the it's the success in some way of this narrative, the story that people will believe, and the, the constant reworking of things. I mean, the thing. This is one of the things that often came up and uh, if you look at secret societies for instance is you can find the same sort of thing centuries apart sort of reappearing you know it's, it's like whack-a-mole you think that it's gone away and then it pops up somewhere else <laughs> the, the the same i mean in a, in a different place but it's the same ideas yeah that reappear and the, the question to me about that, and I'm not certain what the answer is, you can pick over what you like, is are we talking, is there some sort of hidden continuity to this? That is, even though something may have appeared to disappear, it never really did. It was there just beneath the surface. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just the meme that was there. Think about that. It, it's this kind of meme that's floating around through the culture. And then it reaches a particular place where it sort of blossoms and reappears. Yeah, the roots are still there, surviving. Or does it? Or does it completely? And does it just spontaneously regenerate in certain places? And my my personal suspicion is that there's always some continuity that you're just not seeing it, and it only reappears. It only becomes. It's like this, the concept of a smoldering fire. There's always this ember that never goes out. Somewhere buried deep in something, there's this ember. And then when the conditions are right, you know, or as Lovecraft would put it, when the stars are right and oxygen reaches it and fuel reaches it, then it grows into a huge fire. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, it recedes back into an ember and, and then it reappears again. And I think that's a, many of these things we're looking at work that way. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good good analogy yeah. to how this works. QAnon is just the most recent incarnation of this thing, which appears and disappears. Notice it often is – there's a lot of other stress, social stress going on around it. Yep, yep. I don't think if you found societies that were all, you know, uh, fat and happy and content and had their chakras balanced or whatever, you know, in, in, in a content, peaceful society that, that wouldn't exist. Uh, it, it tends to be, I think, a symptom of some sort of greater anxiety that then finds that as a kind of suspect. Because what people do is that there's something's wrong. This is their sense. There's, there's something horribly, horribly wrong. And now you can focus on this thing. This, that's it. That's what's going on. And then you can blame it on whoever you want. Yeah, you know, yeah. it can be the Clintons, the Illuminati, the Jews. Yeah. Fill fill in the blank. Yeah, they're not really on the surface anti-Semitic, but the it, a lot of the memes surrounding them and the general ideas definitely have these roots. I don't think you'd have to look too hard to find that. Yeah. And in some cases, but 
I think you would probably have other people who aren't necessarily interested in that aspect of it at all. Because again, it's it's just completely adaptable. Mm-hmm. It's whoever you want to you want to bring into it. I did and wanna, the main thing is that there's a they out there and they're up to something. Right. I did want to mention, uh, you, you talked about, uh, Paquita D, uh, day Shishmaref. Yeah. And her book, was it the East? What was it? Waters flowing eastward or something like that? Waters flowing eastward. Yeah. Yep. yep. And this chart that she made and like to anyone <laughs> who's been in conspiracy theory a long time, I mean, there's a similar chart in, um, in that book Adam has there, behold a pale horse. These like conspiracy charts have become like a staple, you know, especially in the eighties and nineties. And this seems to be like the mother of all the conspiracy charts. I bet you could trace a lot of things back to it. You should compare them and to see yeah. what degree. It's the Politico Occult Judeo Masonry chart. Yes. And so it's like got all these things connected, uh, going down to eventually creating the French revolution. And then it's got the, the more, um, the more early, uh, early 20th century, late 19th century occultist organizations all coming from this stuff. And it's like, wow. Like when I saw this, I was just like, this is, this is the mother of all conspiracy charts. The Knights Templar are in there somewhere. Oh yeah. All, because all they're, they're, in, they're in there everywhere. Uh, yeah. It's, well, I'm, part of this is just the flow chart. See, there's the modern system of – you can do this. I mean, one of the things that I've done in, in, in trying to piece together things where there are lots of people and lots of connections between them, that it was – well, in, in Wall Street in the, in the Russian Revolution, I had this. So what did I do? I would put names of companies and people on three-by-five cards, and I'd start laying them out on my pool table. And then I start making lines, you know, okay, who's the thing to do is to try to figure out what's at the center of it. Where, where does the, where do you find the center when you begin to move them around? What, what do most of the connections come to? What's the key? And then you're looking at business connections. So if you look at something like the American International Corporation, it is indeed a kind of spider web of people, right? which are Jews, but most of whom are not, but they're there. Uh, is a large sort of consortium for, you know, either look at it worldwide economic and investment or uh, uh, economic rape, whichever way you want to, of the third world. But, but there, there are these patterns that come in, so you, you can find them, but it's – you can also in some ways just sort of draw lines between anything. It all depends whatever sort of cards you put on the table. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Once you put all of these names and and you begin to organize it, you'll create some kind of pattern out of it. I mean, some sometimes the pattern will. Ah, here we go. Sometimes the pattern will emerge on its own. In other cases, you can you can change it around. You can uh, you can you can again sort of create the narrative you want to out of it. Right. But yeah, I just thought that was a that was a little side note there. When we were able to track down a, a better copy of this, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is uh this is all of it. Yeah, yeah. Just makes your head spin. <laughs> I'm looking for a conspiranormal on here. I haven't found us yet. I think we're we should be up at the top. I don't think we're I don't think we're on there. That's an oversight on someone's part. <laughs> yes, 
we would be probably somewhere between Freemasonry and occultism. I would our occult. Well, see, when you get you get Jews, Freemasons, and occultism, and you know, let's face it, occultism kind of boils down to devil worship, doesn't it? At least in the minds of a lot. So yeah. there you go. It's the taxel hoax. Just throw Jews in. Well, what's funny, Rick, is that we actually know somebody that fills like at least three of these categories. It's kind of funny. <laughs> They're the Rothschilds. They have to be there, Well, he's Jewish. He's a Freemason. He's an occultist, and he's a communist. Well, <laughs> that's that's. I was going to say. Listen, was- listeners to this show may know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think he has the banking connections, though. He just needs to work on those. No, he's no, got he doesn't. World domination. He no, he doesn't have the banking connections. That's for sure. He needs a rich uncle like Trotsky. There you go. Yeah. Well, excellent cool. excellent dr spence i really appreciate you coming on and doing this this has been uh, very informative i really enjoy um talking about this history and especially especially this kind of history um it's been really fascinating where can uh, people find you and uh if they want to check out the great courses plus series that you do where let's let's uh, go ahead and and uh advertise that as well well, the real history of secret societies, which includes this and 23 other more fascinating episodes on various bizarre topics, can be found. You can get it directly from the Great Courses. You Google that. Uh, and I still think it's part of the uh, uh, the Great Courses Plus that you can find on Amazon Prime. Uh, you can subscribe. There are lots and lot. There are courses on every. I have no stock in the company, but if you want to find out just about anything. Uh, there's a course on Gnosticism. There are, you know, there's a course on you know, potting plants, ballroom dancing. All of those are things that you can find. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true, yeah. And the other way of shameless self-promotion, Real History of Secret Societies is already out there, available in different formats. I will have another Great Courses series coming out, I think, in June. Uh, it's been post-production now called Crimes of the Century which is a 12-episode course or series which deals with um, some well-known and some not-so-well-known murder cases that have warranted. There's the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. What more is there to say about that? Actually, quite a bit. The murder of the Romanovs, the Lindbergh baby, Manson, the Zodiac, son of Sam, a couple of murderous maids, the assassination of Leon Trotsky, and other things that I can't right, remember right now. But those are uh, all right. All things that you can find. And I am working on yet another one now, which I'm just beginning, called Secrets of the Occult. Hey, cool. There we go. Uh, my books can be found on Amazon. Um uh, Sydney, the Secret World of Sidney Riley, Trust No One, um, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, the most recent, uh, and then also uh, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, uh, British Intelligence and the Occult, which of all the things I have ever written and probably ever will gets more attention than anything else <laughs> because course. people just love Aleister Crowley. By the way, I highly recommend the Wall Street and the Russian Revolution book. I think you you bring some clarity to that yeah. um, whole time period. There's so much conspiracy theory around that that mess. Yeah, right. And that's something we're going to have to have you back on to talk about because that uh, that is an excellent excellent book. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, I just you know add that there are there are lots of conspiracy theories. There are, but never forget real conspiracies. Yes, there are lots of them, many, yes. many, many. Which is which is why it's so easy to create ones that don't exist because others do. Hmm. And um, well, I think that that's very well, very, very well said. Well, thank you so much, uh, Doctor Spence. Uh, Stay on the line for us. We're going to close this part of the show. Serfiel, is there anything else that you wanted to to ask or say? Not at all. Just wanted to thank you again, and hopefully we will uh, keep in touch and talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. All right. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, and guys, we'll be back to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. Okay, guys, we are here. Um, we are tired because, as you guys have probably heard by now, we did like a two-hour epic with Dr. Future, which we split into two on Patreon. And Serfiel could tell you where to hear that. Well, you can hear it on patreon.com slash conspiranormal for $5 patrons and up, members of the International Association of Conspiranormalists. Uh, we do want to touch a little bit, though, on just uh, we hope you enjoyed that show with Dr. Richard Spence um, and talk about some of the reason behind yeah. uh, why we wanted to put it out. You know, I think uh, I really don't think people should occupy this kind of uh, speculative, weird world without having that context of the history of anti-Semitism and yep. how, how many of these modern day conspiracy memes uh, come from that stuff, even if they don't seem explicitly so. And, yep. um, you know, it's, I think it's just really important to, to understand that. And it's, uh, and yeah, Dr. Spence is definitely the person to, uh, to talk about it and to talk about its, uh, context in, uh, conspiracy theory and secret societies and kind of these more hidden aspects of history. Well, you look at it this way, guys, and I'm addressing the audience that is listening. It's like you have to have some of the historical background on this stuff. You have to know that just like as we mentioned in the show, there's nothing new under the sun. And we wanted to talk about those type of things. So not only did we talk about kind of like the idea of blood libel, which has been recycled now in, into QAnon, but we've seen in other aspects in the last maybe, you know, 30 or 40 years, we've seen that too. But, you know, it's something that dates back to the Middle Ages. And as we learned, and I didn't know that it actually dates back into the ancient world. So uh, into three, at least around 300 BC. So, None of this stuff is new. Mm -hmm. It just gets constantly recycled. And it's usually like uh, Dr. Spence said, it's usually a mad lib. It's usually something that's gets done against a whole different group. Uh, it just insert the group that you hate and that's it. And I'm glad that he mentioned, um, you know, programs, in the context of a, of a race riot, because I was going to mention, but we kind of lost a little track there that I've been looking into like the Tulsa riot of 1921, which is rapidly nearing its hundredth year anniversary. And I mean, those that, that happened 
calling it a race riot is wrong. You could actually call it a pogrom. Yeah. So these different kind of, you know, these different kind of words and these different kind of contexts, uh, they tend to hide the actual reality of what happens. So that's just kind of a point that I wanted to make. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fact that that was, that was called black wall street. Yep. And, you know, the fact that, you know, there's so many, so many narratives, there's so many like racist narratives against people, but, uh, you know, without really understanding the history that, you know, for the most part, besides a few places, uh, African-Americans were not allowed to build significant wealth. Yeah. That's definitely uh, something people don't, don't understand. But, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show. It was probably, uh, you know, pretty difficult, uh, because it is some very, very terrible stuff. And he just shows how, you know, that millennia of, you know, basically conspiracy theory and narratives against people all culminated, you know, in what happened in the third Reich. We didn't even really get into a lot of post-war stuff. I, I wanted to, but obviously, you know, most of it morphs into um, Holocaust denial and, uh, you know, and, uh, and other things with the creation of the state of Israel. Well, maybe that's something we could talk about ourselves at some point in, a, in an yeah, episode. Yeah, or later. Yeah. But uh, but it's just have, you know, that stuff that that's a little more... Um, that's re- more recent, so you know people might know more about. But uh, I really want to thank him for doing that. That was that was just a really good crash course. It was good historical background. All right, I think we'll close there, guys. A longer than usual episode. So you guys will hope you enjoy uh, what you're hearing. We hope that uh, your Patreon, our patrons, are enjoying what they're hearing. Uh, please consider signing up. We've got a lot of great stuff on there. Uh, a lot of good ways to, um, at least at the $10, $20 level to meet and hang out with some of the people virtually on the show. And, um, that's it guys. We will check you out. We're going to have a pretty cool episode for you next week. So come back and join us on conspiracy.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 